Is it a sin to tattoo your body? It says in Leviticus 19, 28. <laughs> Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. Is it a sin to tattoo your body? Men, while you consider this question, let's think about the verse before that one. Leviticus 19.27 Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. You sinners! Jeremy is the only righteous man in this room. Surrounded by sinners, Lord, help me. Is it a sin to tattoo your body? Women, while you consider the tattoo question and that verse in Leviticus, let's also consider the passages in Leviticus 15 and Numbers 5 that says that during her monthly period, a woman is unclean and makes everything she touches unclean. During her period, she should, be, she should be cut off from her people and live outside the camp for a week and then perform a sacrifice and a ritual of cleansing before rejoining her family and the wider community. That's the law. Yeah, I don't know about that. It's all in the same book. So yeah, is it a sin to tattoo your body? Because I know that a few of us were pretty sure we had a good answer to that and we knew it was biblical. The Bible says a whole lot of stuff about a whole lot of stuff. And we're often quite selective in how we choose to apply it. God gave the Israelites a law. Are you an Israelite? Are you a Jew? No? Not sure? Maybe. Is your mum a Jew? If your mum's not a Jew, probably not a Jew. Men, have you been circumcised into the covenant of Abraham? Righteous brother. No, you're not a Jew. Then why do we insist on holding ourselves and other believers under the yoke of the law of Moses. A law that was not written for us. A law that God does not hold us to. God gave the Israelites a law. And he gave us one too. Somehow we confuse the two. And we choose to live by the redundant one. The one instituted for a different people in a different time, under a different covenant, not by the one that he says he has written on our hearts. It is this law, the law of the Spirit, the law of love, that we need to receive and commit ourselves to, not the other one. The old brings judgment and death And the new brings life. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8, verse 1 to 4, 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And he did fulfill them on the cross. And in doing so, he made it obsolete. But then he replaced it with something greater. He replaced it with a new law, a law that had, was at the heart of the old, a law that he taught on, and a law that he lived by, the law of love. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 13, verse 8 to 10, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus described this as the greatest commandment. In Mark 12, 30-31, he says, Love God and love your neighbor. All the commandments and the prophets hang on these. That's what it boils down to. But instead of nurturing this love, the church seems fixated on nurturing its knowledge and practice of the law. A law that was not meant for us. The book of Acts records the dawning of a new era and the history of God's relationship with humanity. Men and women who were not Jewish, not his chosen people Israel, were coming to faith in greater numbers than the Jews were. They were being sanctified under a new covenant, a covenant of grace, not law. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15 from verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. 
After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. James continued, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles, that's people who are not Jews, who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Saturday, every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and sent them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. You'll be well to avoid these things. Farewell. That's it. I read the whole thing because that's the whole story. That explains this whole thing without me having to add anything. That's it. If you're a Gentile believer, that is God's word for you concerning his law. In fact, that's even more than Paul goes on to preach. Check out Romans 14. Romans 14, Paul says, "Eh, meat offered to idols. You know what? If your faith's weak, maybe you should avoid it. But if it's strong, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Go by your own conscience and have a concern for your brother or your sister's faith. He's encouraging even more morality than this. Trusting in the Holy Spirit active in us. What does this all mean? It means we are not under the law. We are not born to it. We have not been circumcised into it. We have not committed ourselves to it. We have committed ourselves to Christ. Christ is not the law. He is so much more than the law. 
He is not a burden. He carries our burdens. So why do we insist on subjecting ourselves and more importantly, subjecting others to this and judging them according to something we have no authority or biblical mandate to do? Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 15, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law that will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the righteous requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Now the requirements of the law which which God has written on our hearts are not thou shalt not wear clothing of mixed fabric, which is Leviticus 19.19. It's not you must not shave the hair at the side of your head. Leviticus 19.27, or cast out your woman from the home during her time of uncleanliness. Though there's probably a case to be made for that one. Yeah, Leslie wasn't sure I should have kept that one in. But anyway, Uh, the law that is written on our heart, the law that our conscience bears witness to, that the Holy Spirit reminds us of, is the law of love. The command to love God and our neighbor. Sure, the outworking of this law actually can track along quite nicely with much of what you will read in the law of Moses. The law, as you read through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, it's not all stuff like wearing clothing of mixed fabric or sowing your field with two different types of seed. There's some awesome stuff in there about the way that you treat foreigners in your country or you treat Uh, people who are slaves, how you treat your brother and your sister. There's some really cool stuff in there which reflects the heart that God has for his people. Is it okay for a Christian to get a tattoo? Is it okay for a Christian to drink? Is it okay for a Christian to smoke or swear or watch R18 movies or buy a lotto ticket or masturbate or download copyrighted material? Those are the wrong questions. The right questions are how can I love God more? How can I love my neighbor more? The other questions are questions of law. We want to answer them so that we know where boundaries are, so we know what we can get away with. The law of the Sabbath, you're not, you're not supposed to do work, and the Pharisees had it worked out down to the, down to the foot, probably down to the inch. There was a Sabbath day journey, which dictated exactly how far you were allowed to travel on a Sabbath day before it became work. And that's a tough one if you want to go about your business, but you want to keep the law. So what you might do is, um, you might take a piece of your property, like an old shoe, And you might go down to the boundary of your Sabbath day, chuck it there, and that's now my home. 
And so I can now travel another distance from there and still be within the righteous requirements of the law. Now, I could live like this, thinking I'm righteous, thinking I'm honoring God, when all I'm doing is doing whatever I please while maintaining a veneer of, uh, of righteousness. It's just religion. Can God's honored with this? That seems silly, doesn't it? Even though that actually was a practice. But then we, we do the same kind of thing in testing out what the law is and isn't because we want to know what we can get away with. What can we get away with? Will I get a speeding ticket at 107? Will I get a speeding ticket at 104? Okay, 104, sweet. That's how fast I can drive. Even though we know the speed limit is actually 100 and we're recommended to drive under that. But no, no, we're going we're gonna to push the boundary and go as fast as we can. In fact, here's a stretch I know there aren't any speed cameras so I can push it even further then because I'll get away with it. Those first questions are questions of law, and they are selfish questions. The, the latter questions are questions of love and relationship. And please make no mistake, certainly do not carry this away. I am in no way advocating amorality or unrighteousness. To the contrary, I am actually proposing a righteousness that exceeds that of the law. It exceeds that of the Pharisees. For the righteousness we are called to is not a righteousness of law, but a righteousness of love. The righteousness of the Spirit. The righteousness that the law produces is heartless. It's judgmental, prideful. It is proven to be hypocritical. It is the attitude of the Pharisees of which Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27 to 28. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And they considered themselves to be law keepers. And somehow they could seem to keep the law, but be filled with wickedness. The righteousness that love produces is true. It is sincere. It honors God. And it blesses others. It informs and guides every area of our thinking and behavior. It transforms us as we submit to its sanctifying power. Yes, our love for God is demonstrated in obedience. John 14 makes that clear. But as the outworking of a loving heart, not a disciplined religious one. So instead of trying to follow the law, which we are not required to do. We persevere in growing in our love for God and for others. And this will produce a lifestyle of righteousness that is authentic and that reflects a loving heart, not a legalistic one. 
And people can tell. You ever wondered why our churches are not teeming with new converts to the kingdom? I think about this all the time. I think about the way we're portrayed in the media, the way that we portray ourselves outside of these walls. When people in the world meet us, do they have an encounter with law or with love? Do they meet Pharisees or do they meet lovers of Christ? Do we throw chapter and verse at them or do we love them and forgive them as we have been forgiven? Do we meet people who are, who are authentic and, oh, sorry, are, are we people who are consistent and authentic representatives of, of Jesus? Or are we consistent, authentic representatives of the Pharisees? Jesus, who forgave the woman caught in adultery and socialized with sinning outcasts of his society. Are we like him or are people meeting us in a way that is judgmental and self-righteous. People who only see others' sin, not the beloved creation that they are, made in the image of God and loved passionately by him. The night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Does everyone know that we love one another? Does everyone know that we love Jesus? New Zealand's pretty pretty clear on what our position is on homosexuality. That we've made very clear. Do they know our love? This is the law that Jesus will build his church on, the law of love. Our challenge tonight is to trade the old law for the new one. And in the law of love, we will find the freedom that he's promised us.